Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30-minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcasts at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with a schedule of English language broadcast or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com. You can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Sputnik Radio, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, and Radio Havana, Cuba. We'll begin with Sputnik Radio. On this program called Going Underground, Afshin Ratansi spoke with Professor Karen Greenberg, author of Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy. She discusses what she calls the subtle tools of international coercion, such as torture and drone strikes, which have furthered U.S. policy since 9-11. She talks about the degradation of language to make policy boundaries deliberately vague, enabling broader U.S. military interventions. She describes how Obama continued the practice, Trump expanded the use, and how Biden is perpetuating it in immigration policy at the southern border. Sputnik Radio. Joining me now is Professor Karen Greenberg, author of new book, Subtle Tools, The Dismantling of American Democracy from the War on Terror to Donald Trump. Given the extraordinary rendition, waterboarding, drone strikes, we saw Joe Biden's drone strike killing seven at Kabul for the Afghan withdrawal. Subtlety isn't the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, What are these subtle tools in the title of your new book? Some things are not so subtle, but my idea is that all the policies that you've mentioned, whether it's drone attacks, uh, renditions to torture, uh, et cetera, were what we saw. But what was just as important, if not more important, was how they were done and the tools that were used to create these policies. And that until the United States recognizes these tools and addresses those, we're still vulnerable to the kind of excesses uh, from laws and norms that we uh, encountered and suffered in the wake of the uh, attacks of 9-11. Because some might say that way before 9-11, these tools were being used in assassination strikes. I don't know, Che Guevara, that assassination. These things happened all the time. Why, after 9-11, did they even need to have some structural uh, basis in which they could uh, attack uh, people, individuals, nations, uh, in the way that we've seen since 9-11? Because so much of what had been done often in the covert sphere and within you know, agencies that were had those kinds of powers were broadened across government. So one of the subtle tools I talk about was secrecy. The way in which secrecy was used in the war on terror to, and yes, it had been used before in the Vietnam War, for example, um, and many other times to do things in the name of the American people that they did not know about, reached new levels in terms of its implementation. It's made into law. The Department of Justice declared legal 
uh, the use of enhanced interrogation techniques, which were torture. So the use of secrecy as, as a paradigmatic shift in terms of how frequently, how often, and how broadly across the government it was used is a different level than what happened before. So it's not a brand new tool. It was just a, a tool that many more agreed to use given the trauma of 9-11. And you use the phrase enhanced uh, interrogation. Uh, one of your uh, first subtle tools is the degradation of language. Why is the degradation of language so important as a tool used by the United States uh, military yeah. industrial complex? The abuse of language, and in particular, the use of language that is imprecise, is what allowed for major transformations within the culture of governance in the United States. So, for example, the authorization for the use of military force from 2001, which really uh, was about the use of troops in Afghanistan, was, did not name an enemy, did not have a, a time limit, did not name or refer to the end of hostilities, and did not have a geographical limit. This is in contradistinction to prior authorizations for the use of force and prior declarations of war in US history. And what that enabled, that imprecision in language, that refusal to be specific did, was to enable um, the United States and each successive president to use the authorization in countries around the world, basically with the idea that this was related somehow to terrorism. And even though we've pulled out of Afghanistan now, the 2001 authorization that authorized that invasion and the sending of troops to Afghanistan still persists. So it is a tool that presidents do not want to get rid of. Even Joe Biden, who has shown his you know, intention and desire to really bring to an end this period of the war on terror that was started uh, with the attacks of 9-11. Obama came into office very cognizant of the of the kinds of excesses that this book is about. And from the very beginning, he tried to address secrecy. He tried to make uh, procedures um, go back to sort of respecting a normal vetting of issues and potential policies and to clarify some of the language. However, even the best intentions uh, under Obama went awry in this particular respect, in part because it was some of these were useful tools, secrecy being one of them, and also language, the degradation of language, as you referred to earlier, um, assassination. You know, these persisted as as a way of redefining assassination during. Well, Obama. he was the drone he, killer he, in chief. I mean, as you say, the road to hell paved with good intentions. If you think they yeah, were. They put it, for the drone strikes. And so they just became very, very useful tools that nobody had wanted to give up on. And, and my point of the book is that leaving them on the table is what gave extra powers to Donald Trump. In this book, it's very clear how you explain how 9-11 legislation and degradation of language and all these subtle tools are then somehow brought home to your southern border. Yeah, exactly. There's so much that goes on in terms of immigration policy and the southern border that are the tools that were used. One, as I've just said, taking secrecy to new levels by destroying evidence so there isn't evidence there. But listen, this had happened in the past. It had happened in a number of cases in the war on terror. But here it became an overt policy that was, was part of a pattern. The decision to criminalize visa overstays and to criminalize in, uh, undocumented status meant 
the erasure of the distinction between criminal and non-criminal immigrants or migrants. And so that was a way in which language was, again, degraded. There was no legal distinction, and you could be deported if you were a visa overstay or if you had committed a criminal act. Presidency since 9-11 has suffered tremendously in terms of checks and balances. Um, in, uh, the presidency has been empowered in ways that certainly the founding fathers didn't have in mind, and that in prior periods in American history has been pushed back against both, you know, for Republicans and Democrats. I think all the presidents now are in this era where congressional restraints on the presidency and judicial restraints on the presidency are at an all-time low. And that changed dramatically after the war on terror, in part because of the, the, the subtle tools and the courts allowing imprecise language rather than insisting on precise language. It's just what law is based on. Congress not doing its duty in terms of demanding that transparency rather than secrecy and demanding its role in oversight of different agencies that had to do with national security. And that this redefinition of the presidency based on these subtle tools had led to a, a period, which I would call the 21st century, Democrats and Republicans alike, of unaccountability that is a, a, a road to an unhealthy uh, continuing and maybe um, institutionalizing in ways we can't fix an unhealthy democracy. When you have presidents that authorize the use of torture and a number of people that write the law, rewrite the law, um, help implement it, et cetera, and there is no accounting for it, and a report that's written by the Senate is kept basically uh, under wraps and some copies of it destroyed, that is not accountability. And so I think these are the tools that allow unaccountability to happen. Imprecise language, bureaucratic dysfunction in a way that bleeds the distinctions between different uh, departments, for example, Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security, to speak to your southern border issue. So it is not just a Democratic or Republican thing. It really has to do with changes in the culture of governance. Professor Karen Greenberg, thank you. That interview was by Afshin Ritansi from his program called Going Underground on Sputnik Radio, the current name for the voice of Russia, available online at rt.com and on YouTube, search for Going Underground. Next, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Germany is moving toward a coalition between the Free Democrats, the Greens, and the Social Democrats. The Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Europe is ready to go, and gas and fuel prices have skyrocketed in Europe. A series of brief global COVID reports from the UK, Russia, and more. Brazilian senators want to bring charges against President Bolsonaro for his catastrophic handling of the pandemic, including crimes against humanity. Russia hosted a regional conference on Afghanistan, bringing the Taliban together with diplomats from neighboring countries. The first annual Earthshot Awards were announced, giving $1.4 million grants to develop ideas for tackling the climate crisis. The five winners included the Republic of Costa Rica and innovators in India, Bahamas, Milan, Italy, and clean energy fuel production in Thailand. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. Germany is another step closer to forming a new government. The pro-business free Democrats have agreed to enter coalition talks with the Greens and the center-left Social Democrats. It puts the Social Democrats' Olaf Scholz on track 
to secede Angela Merkel as becoming the next German chancellor. The operator of the Russian-led Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline says the first of the project's two lines is ready for operation. The controversial project is awaiting a clearance to start sales to Europe. Russia has been pushing for the full approval of the pipeline amidst surging gas prices in Europe. EU leaders are meeting in Brussels today. Top of the agenda, soaring energy prices. The EU will address its toolbox of measures to tackle the energy crunch, including direct income support for vulnerable households, subsidies for struggling companies and tax reductions in the final bill. So let's take a look at those prices. In Germany, heating oil prices leapt by almost 77% in September compared to last year. And prices for natural gas in Europe have skyrocketed over 420% in the last year. 420%. Bitcoin has surged to more than $66,000. That is a record high that's almost double its worth at the beginning of this year. The cryptocurrency was helped by Tuesday's debut of a Bitcoin futures ETF or exchange traded fund on the New York Stock Exchange. Medical experts are calling on the UK government to restore social distancing and other restrictions as COVID-19 related hospitalizations and deaths rise to their highest levels in months. England eased most restrictions back in July. Well, now the government says it's relying on booster shots to protect the most vulnerable. Ukraine has extended its state of emergency and tightened restrictions as the number of new infections rises sharply. Regional uh, authorities are now allowed to impose COVID-19 restrictions through the end of the year. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization has called on the world's 20 richest economies to meet their commitments to vaccine dose sharing. It comes amid a massive shortfall in the number of doses needed to reach the global vaccination target of 40%. And Germany is facing a significant rise in new daily cases. More than 16,000 new infections were reported across the nation on Thursday. Russia is facing what some doctors say is the worst of the coronavirus pandemic so far. With cases surging and less than one-third of the country's residents fully vaccinated, the virus is claiming lives at a rate never before seen in the country. In Brazil, where senators there are recommending bringing charges against President Jair Bolsonaro for his catastrophic handling of the coronavirus pandemic. The 10 senators are proposing charges including crimes against humanity. A Senate inquiry committee held six months of hearings into Brazil's devastating pandemic response. Their final report says that Bolsonaro's government has acted too slowly to fight the spread of the coronavirus and deliberately exposed the population to the risk of mass infection. Well, Brazil has one of the world's worst death tolls from the coronavirus, just over 600,000 people have died. Bolsonaro has repeatedly played down the seriousness of the virus, at one point calling it a little flu. 600 handkerchiefs hung on Copacabana Beach, one for every 1,000 Brazilians who lost their lives to COVID-19. To what extent is Brazil's high death toll due to mismanagement by the government of Jair Bolsonaro? The president opposed lockdowns from the start because of their economic impact. Bolsonaro often appears in public without a mask and has been openly skeptical of vaccines, 
bragging about not being vaccinated himself. When his health minister fell ill with COVID-19 just last month, he was quick to push his point. He took two doses of vaccine and he got infected. He lived wearing a face mask and got infected. But beyond Bolsonaro's direct pandemic measures, the Senate probe also looked into allegations that he obstructed efforts to protect Brazil's indigenous population, which has been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Senators examined a number of other issues that have fueled public anger, such as Bolsonaro's failure to take action over allegations that federal officials solicited bribes for vaccines, or the president's well-known promotion of unproven medicines for use by doctors. The Senate heard testimony about a major hospital chain that pushed the use of such off-label drugs on the elderly, even though they'd been shown not to work. As Brazil continues to count the cost, observers say it's very unlikely that Bolsonaro will be brought to trial. But his bid for re-election next year is looking increasingly difficult. Well, Russia today hosted a regional conference on Afghanistan, bringing the Taliban together with diplomats from neighboring countries. So this is the first major international meeting where the Taliban have sat as equals with regional powers such as India and Pakistan. Opening the meeting today, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that there is now no alternative to the Taliban in Afghanistan, but he held off from officially recognizing the Taliban as the country's legitimate leaders. He said the Taliban must guarantee the fundamental rights of all Afghan residents. Now, during the meeting, Russia expressed concern about drugs and terrorism spilling across Afghanistan's borders. In response, the Taliban's deputy prime minister said Afghan territory will not be used against any country. If the new government is not recognized and supported, the groups that disrupt security will naturally be strengthened. The policy of the new government is that we will not allow anyone or any group to undermine the security of the Afghan people, Afghanistan's neighbours and countries in the region and beyond. Well, those are political promises. Afghanistan's economy right now, it's unravelling and a looming humanitarian crisis is facing the country. British royals and celebrities turned out Sunday night for the first ever Earthshot Prize. The awards founded by Prince William give innovators $1.4 million grants to develop and scale up their ideas for tackling the climate crisis. The winners were from Costa Rica, Italy and the Bahamas. Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channel called DW News. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, 
Willits, California, 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show, which I freely distribute to radio stations. Radio stations are welcome to contribute, as did KMUD, People Powered Radio in Garberville, California, did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba. The World Meteorological Organization warned that 100 million poor people across Africa are severely threatened by climate change. Indigenous communities from Ecuador's rainforest have filed a lawsuit against the government plans for a massive expansion of oil and mining extraction. Then a report on U.S. human rights lawyer Stephen Donzinger, who won a case in 2011 against Chevron for destroying vast lands in Ecuador, which resulted in thousands of deaths. Since then, Chevron has hired thousands of lawyers to stall any settlement payments, limit media reporting, and to get Donzinger placed under house arrest for over two years. Radio Havana, Cuba. A new report by the United Nations has warned that, quote, more than 100 million extremely poor people across Africa are threatened by accelerating climate change that could also melt away the continent's few glaciers within two decades. The report, released on Tuesday by the World Meteorological Organization, presented a grim reminder that Africa's 1.3 billion people, quote, remain extremely vulnerable as the continent warms more and at a faster rate than the global average, even though the continent's 54 countries are responsible for less than 4% of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. Indigenous communities from Ecuador's Amazon rainforest have filed a lawsuit against the government of right-wing President Guillermo Lasso to halt his plans for a massive expansion of oil and mining extraction in the region, as this endangers millions of acres of pristine and sacred land and the livelihood of indigenous nations. Hundreds of indigenous elders and young people arrived in the capital, Quito, on Monday to file the lawsuit with Ecuador's highest court. Neamonte Nenquimo, one of the organizers of the protest, told reporters, quote, As war orani de pastaza, our territorial life, we live there, cultivate fish, hunt. We grow yucca and planting to feed our children. We rely on the rainforest, on the land, on the river. If oil companies enter the war orani of pastaza territory, all the 22 communities that live there and others will be affected. U.S. human rights lawyer Stephen Donziger has been targeted over the last 10 years by oil giant Chevron after he won a historic $9.5 billion suit against the corporate Goliath, which knowingly dumped toxic waste in Ecuador's Amazon rainforest, causing huge environmental destruction and killing thousands of people from indigenous communities in the area. Now he's fighting for his freedom in New York after an unprecedented over 800-day home confinement. According to The Guardian, last week, Loretta Preska, a federal judge with financial ties to Chevron, sentenced Donzinger to a further six months' imprisonment for criminal contempt. The lawyer had asked the court to consider an opinion by independent United Nations experts that found his court-ordered home confinement was a violation of international human rights law. The UN experts said that the US breached international law by putting Donzinger under house arrest for such an extended period of time. 
pointing out that the, quote, appropriate remedy would be to accord the lawyer an enforceable right to compensation. Amnesty International also petitioned U.S. authorities to, quote, promptly implement the decision by the U.N. Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, calling for the immediate release of Stephen Donziger. Meanwhile, there's been a corporate media blackout around Donzinger's case, despite the lawyer's over 10-year battle with Chevron, which has been using the U.S. justice system to enact its revenge on the indigenous rights and environmental campaigner as part of what he describes as a, quote, plan concocted by Chevron to dismantle my life, to avoid paying up, and to turn me into a weapon of intimidation against the whole legal profession. Last week, Don Singer spoke to Breakthrough News about the suit that sparked the whole controversy, the political and judicial persecution he faces, and its wider ramifications for activists and U.S. society. Chevron went into the Amazon of Ecuador and made a conscious decision to dump billions of gallons of cancer-causing oil waste onto indigenous ancestral lands. Thousands of people had died. That was a money-making, a money-saving, I should say, decision. It was based out of pure greed. We came in as lawyers and tried to realign that awful situation and force Chevron to pay the people it poisoned. We won the case, and rather than pay the judgment, they literally spent $3 billion to pay 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers to attack me and other lawyers. This is not new, but what's never been seen before is this idea of a corporate prosecution that is a Chevron-driven private prosecutor who managed to lock me up for 800 days. I never got a jury. I'm charged with a crime that was rejected by the regular prosecutor. The longest sentence ever given a lawyer who's been convicted of what I'm charged with is 90 days of home confinement. And I've now served literally 800 days of home confinement, more than eight times that amount, And on top of that, the judge, who has financial ties to Chevron, Loretta Preska, just sentenced me to six months in prison on top of my 800 days of house arrest. This is a playbook. This isn't happenstance. It's not the mistake of a judge. It's not an overreach by a corporation. It is actually a playbook that has been used in other countries um, against other activists and will be used again in this country against lawyers and activists who are a little too successful in holding the fossil fuel industry accountable. To some degree, it's already being used against protesters at Standing Rock, at Line 3, and so many other places around the country, primarily Native Americans, many of whom, like Jessica Resniak, are locked up for years um, for engaging in civil disobedience at pipeline sites. Chevron and the fossil fuel industry have a lot of power, and what the people of Ecuador have done with the help of their lawyers like me is very threatening. The criminal justice system in our country has enormous, enormous problems, and I don't want to act like I have like this problem worse than others, because in many respects I don't. I'm at least home. But this is different. This is a fake case targeting a lawyer who's a frontline defender of the earth, And he's being prosecuted directly by an oil company that has captured the public machinery of our prosecutorial apparatus. That has never been seen before. That is scary, and we must not let them get away with it. The Chevron versus Donziger case is a perfect example of how U.S. capitalist imperialism works within its own borders. 
the oil giant has leveraged through political pressure and financial means the country's legal system not in search of justice but for punishment to evade its responsibility of compensating those affected by its consciously harmful actions and to destroy the life of the people who are trying to hold it accountable. For more information on the Chevron Donsinger case, an October 4th, 2021 article by James North in The Nation entitled Is Chevron's Vendetta Against Stephen Donsinger Finally Backfiring gives a detailed yet succinct account of the background leading up to the case and recent developments. You can also visit the site freedonsiger.com, that's freedonsiger, all one word, and learn more about the case. For Radio Havana, Cuba, I'm Natalie Howard. Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, though their podcasts are not updated. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15140 and from 5 p.m. to 11 at either 6000, 6060, or 6100. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 25th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.